Hello, and welcome to Seroptimus International Voices, where we give a global voice to women and girls. SI Voices is a space where women's stories and issues are heard as we celebrate 100 years of our remarkable organization. We will reveal and rediscover the history of our global movement while educating and informing on many of the key challenges affecting women and girls today. Hello, welcome to another episode of SI Voices. This is Liz Batten speaking to you from the UK. I'm a member of SI Salisbury down in the south of England. And today I'm speaking to another Seroptimist, Saab. And she's from another club in my region, SI Epsom. Saab has a personal story to share with us today about forced marriage and honour-based violence. Before we hear from Saab and her first-hand experience, I just want to really set this in context by talking to you about what the UN definition is of child marriage and forced marriage, sometimes referred to as CFM in shorthand. Child marriage is any marriage where at least one of the parties is under 18 years of age, the UN say. And they say that forced marriage is a marriage in which one and or both parties have not personally expressed their full and free consent to the union. A child marriage is considered to be a form of forced marriage, given that one and or both parties have not expressed full, free and informed consent. Well, my friend Saab is a bit of an expert on this, having actually been part of a forced marriage and now campaigning very hard on the subject as well as on honour-based violence. Saab, it's lovely to have you on the call today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And we're looking forward to hearing your story. I'm going to say at the very beginning that Saab's written a wonderful book, Shamed, which is an excellent book, I have to say, which if you're like me, once you start reading it, you won't be able to put it down. She's an author. She's an international speaker. She's a campaigner, as I said, against forced marriage and honour-based violence. She's also a former police community support officer, and she's assisted now with a new charity called True Honour. So, Saab, I got to know you in our region. Um, probably most important to me is you're a seroptimist, which is wonderful. I wonder if we could just start by telling me a little bit about you and your early life. Um, I was born in the UK. My parents came over from India in the 1960s. Um, when they came over, they had um, no language skills, no jobs, no friends, nothing at all. They had to start from scratch. Um, I remember growing up in that culture it was really, really difficult. My parents were strict. But when we got to meet some other families, I realised my parents were not as strict as some of the other families. Um, my life was pretty much going to school and home. I couldn't mix with other friends at school. I didn't have any after-school parties, birthday parties, um, sleepovers. That was completely not allowed in our culture. Um, at times, I wanted to meet my friends, maybe after school for a short while, and my parents said that's not allowed. So every, anything my parents said, that was normal to me. I couldn't really go outside that circle. I remember we lived in a three-bedroom, normal, standard house. There's three families, my my mum my and dad, and my grandparents and uncle and aunt. So all three of us were living in one three-bedroom house. And I remember it being quite tight, quite cramped. But again, that was that's how it was in those days. We all had to survive in that one little place. There was no privacy for any of us. Um, and it's really, really difficult. As a young person, as a young girl, I had loads of responsibilities. I had to look after my siblings, my cousins. So I found at a young age, I had to grow up really, really quickly. So I really couldn't do a lot what other, my other friends were doing. So it was quite difficult for me. 
Yeah, thank you, Sabi. It sounds like it was a difficult time as a teenager. In the book, you talk of the time that you visited India when you were 11 years old. What happened when you were out there? I remember going to India with my dad. Um, my dad said to me, we're going to go to India so you can learn about our culture a bit more, meet your grandparents out there and your uncles and aunts. And to me, it looked like it was a short holiday for about three to four months. When we got there, um, my dad said that he was going to get, go back home and get my mum and come back. So I made a bit of a fuss. I was quite young at that age. Um, I must have been about maybe 11 years old. And being away from my parents, I found it really, really difficult. And I remember kind of getting really, really upset and emotional, saying to my dad, take me with you. I don't want to be left alone with, with my grandparents because I didn't really know them. I couldn't speak Punjabi. They couldn't speak English. So communication was really, really difficult. But my dad said that, now you stay here, learn about the culture, and I'll come back and pick you up. But those months ended up in two years. So I was missing from, away from my parents, my sisters, my brother, my cousins. Two years in India was really, really hard for me. Um, as a young girl, my body was changing. I was becoming a teenager, becoming a young woman, and I kind of needed my mum with me. And it's really, I've just found it really, really difficult. It must have been. Um, and I, I think navigating between the cultures of your family must have been very hard. Now, um, you did come back to the UK and you went on to study your GCSEs. But as you said, it was a struggle because you spent so much time looking after some of your young cousins and, and so on. But then you went on to study office skills. But your life um, was changed completely at the age of 19. And you were introduced to a man who you were expected to marry. When I became 19, my family introduced me to this guy. I met him. This guy seemed okay and the family seemed okay. But I wasn't happy with, I wasn't happy to go ahead with that proposal. And I said to my parents, it's not for me. My dad sat me down and he said to me, what is the problem? You know, why is it explained to us? What's wrong with him? You know, why, why don't you want to go ahead? And I couldn't really tell him. I couldn't, I found it so difficult to help them understand that. But from my point of view, I was getting this really strong feeling, a gut feeling, something telling me this isn't right for you not to go ahead with it. And I was trying to explain that to my parents, but they wouldn't understand. They saw me as a young girl, naive, and they said that, you know, we're responsible adults, we know what's best for you. So I couldn't really argue. And I, but I carried on saying no. Then my dad spoke to one of my uncles. My uncle came over. He sat me down and he said to me, look, you're just making a big fuss of this. You know, you need to understand that he's educated. He's got a really good job. The family are well connected in the community. Everybody knows them. They go to the local temple. And you're not going to find a better match. So I felt I was pressured. I was pressured at all that. And I thought, I haven't got a way out. I just feel trapped. I really felt trapped and isolated. I thought, you know, I'm not going to get, nobody's going to understand. It's something I've got to accept. And I, in the end, I did accept it. And I just went ahead with it. Uh, maybe now's a good time to sort of just remind people this all happened, of course, back in the late 1980s. 2011 was uh, made a crime over here. You know, there's over a thousand, about 1,300 cases a year that the forced marriage unit in the UK deals with. And since it became illegal in the UK, there have been 11,000 cases taken to prosecution. So the government is trying to do something about it, but we fear, don't we, that it isn't actually addressing the whole problem. Um, although, it is better than it was, you know, back in the 1980s when it happened to you. Yeah, I, I would say it's much, much better than it was years ago, but we've still got a long way to go. There's so much awareness that needs to be done. And the figures we're talking about at the moment are accurate figures. They're kind of, there's, there's more figures out there because they're hidden. Nobody, there's so many victims out there who don't come forward, who don't go to the police, who don't go to the other agencies to report it. So we don't know what the right figures are, actually, because there's so much more out there. 
So, Ben, once married, you lived in another extended family situation, didn't you, this time in your husband's family, and you became quite close to your sister-in-law, who is married to your husband's brother. Um, now, we're moving on a little bit from the forced marriage situation, so tell us about Sergit and her marriage and your relationship with her. I did. When I got married, I ended up in a, another family, which were even more strict than my own parents. Um, I got to know my sister-in-law, Sergit. She was married at the age of 16 forced marriage. She probably met the man once maybe before she got married just to introduce each other. But I remember her telling me that, you know, she was really, really upset. It wasn't her choice. She was forced in that, that situation. And being as young as 16, you don't really know anything about marriage. You're so young. You just left school. You just want to be happy and make friends and be the person you want to be. But she was forced in that situation and she had to make a go of it. And Moving into a strict family home, that must have been really, really difficult for her, really upsetting and hard for her. Again, she had no choice. It was, looking back now, it was all done to save their family honour. So honour in our culture is really, really big. We are taught from day one what honour means. And if you step outside that honour, you're going to have to be dealt with. So every time something happens, you know, you've got to think twice. As when I was growing up, my parents always said to me, you can't do this, it's going to offend our family honour. You can't do this, you can't wear this, you can't speak to so-and-so. As a young girl looking at my friends at school, you would think that they go after school parties, they're doing activities like basketball or netball. I want to do that as well. But my parents said, no, it's not, it's against our family honour. We don't do those kind of things. We know your life is just going to school, back home, and that's it. So it's really, really difficult for both of us living in that family. So um, so tell us the story then. Uh, Sergit um, went to India, didn't she? And she didn't come back. And tell tell us how you found out what had gone on. Well, as Sergi was getting used to living in that family, she realised there was a lot of pressure on her. She felt restricted and isolated and controlled, and she didn't want that life. She was only 16. She wanted to get a job, and the family always said to her, you don't need to get a job. You're going to be a housewife. You're going to have kids, and that's going to be your role. And as a young person, she wanted more from life. She tried getting a job a couple of times. The family always stopped her, saying that, no, you're not going to go out to work. You're going to stay at home. Eventually, she got a job at Heathrow as a customs officer, and she got she, that made her really, really happy. She started making new friends, socialising, and eventually, she started becoming a bit westernised in the family's eyes. And they were trying to stop that, saying that you can't behave like this. It's against our family honour. You can't let your hair down. You can't cut your hair. You can't wear westernised clothing because it's not acceptable. Only because of that, they decided to take her to India in 1998 because she was be not behaving as a dutiful wife. They took her to India. But before they took her, my mother-in-law sat down and had a meeting with certain family members. I said that Sergi's behaviour was getting out of control. We had to put a stop to this, that she couldn't let this carry on because it was offending her family honour. So on the day they left... Um, I wanted to speak to Sergi and warn her and say, don't go to India, it's not going to be safe for you. This is what I've heard. But my mother-in-law mother made every single effort to make us stay apart. She didn't let, let us talk to each other. She didn't let me say bye to her, anything like that. But on the day they left, she also came up to me and warned me and said that if you speak to anybody, she go, you know what we can do. When she told me that, I knew I had to do something. And obviously, I spoke to my husband at that first stage. And he said that you're not allowed to speak to anybody. And I said, well, she's your mum. You can't let your mum do that. You have to stop her. So there was loads of arguments between us then. But I knew that I had that information. I had to do something. So the only thing I could do, alert the police or tell, some, tell somebody. 
And the only opportunity I would get going from leaving home on my own was to drop my kids at school. So when I went to drop my daughter to school, I ran into a phone box and I rang Crime Stoppers and told them exactly what I knew. And then I wrote a letter to the police as well on the next day saying that Serge has been taken to India. This is what the plan is. This is what my mother-in-law said to us. You have to keep her safe. You have to get there and make sure nothing goes wrong. And all that went on. Um, then after two weeks, my mother-in-law came back from India. And there's no sign of Sergi at all. I didn't know exactly what was going on, but actually, I kind of believed that she wouldn't do this. She would because that was her daughter-in-law, her son's wife. You know, she's had two kids. And there's no way she would do that. But until she sat down and said to me, "Everything's been taken care of," and I still wouldn't believe it. Then she said to me, "Actually, this is what happened." And along that, and she also made it clear to me that if you were to speak to anybody, the same would the same would happen to you. She's basically threatening me not to go to the authorities, not to go to the police or anything. So I felt really trapped. I feel really, really shaken up. I was really, really scared, thinking, what do I do with this information? Who do I tell? Thank you, Saab, for sharing your experience with us. It must have been terrifying for you at that age to deal with such fear and uncertainty. You talk about everything that happens after Sergit's disappearance in your book, Shamed, and we learn that she was a victim of honour-based violence. Something that struck me is that it took seven years for the family to be prosecuted and brought to justice and for you to get out of that awful situation. I think now may be a time to let everybody know some of the work that you're doing with True Honour. And um, I know a particular hero of yours, Clive Driscoll, is also helping you with some of that work. Tell us a bit about the work you do with True Honour. Yeah, True Honour was set up um, after I gave evidence um, in 2007. I actually joined the police after I gave evidence and because I wanted to help the police to understand these issues, these crimes, honour-based violence and forced marriages. Because at the time I was trying to get help, nobody understood what these issues were. Nobody was able to understand or help me or support me in any kind of way. So I joined the police for only that reason, so they would understand and also understand from a victim's point of view that why they don't come forward to seek help, why they, they don't trust the police. And then after five years, I set up True Honour because I wanted to, um, to raise more awareness to agencies and frontline professionals. And we do, as a charity, go across the country help every single frontline professional to understand honour-based violence and forced marriage and other hidden crimes as well. Um, Clive Driscoll um, was the senior officer who investigated Serge's murder. Um, he's now retired. He is our deputy chair of True Honour. And he supports me on the charity to make sure the victims are fully understood, the victims are fully believed and get the support they need. Um, because even today, I believe that if he hadn't supported me the way he did, I probably wouldn't be here today. He was the only officer who actually did understand and believe me and got justice for Sergio and supported me and my kids. So there are victims out there who come to the charity um, and we fully understand what they're going through. We sit down, we talk to them and we believe them and we give them the support they need. And some victims find it so difficult to speak about what they're going through because I've been through it and I've lived it and I know and I fully understand what they're going through. I kind of share some of my story with them to help them understand that actually they're not alone. I've been through it myself. And I'm really, really pleased to say that um, it has helped so many victims out there. So many victims, after speaking to us, have actually decided to go to the police to make a statement and report whatever abuse or crime they're going through. 
And that I think that's really, really what makes the difference. If we can save one life at a time, it would really be worth doing what we're doing. That's absolutely right, Sabta. I think you do wonderful work with that charity. And I think raising awareness amongst the law enforcement is so crucial because, as you say, they have to be believed, have to be listened to and have to be helped through what's a very difficult process. And, of course, raising awareness amongst young women and, I guess, men as well, but particularly women, um, of, of what the law says and how they can get help and where to go to do that and giving them that support. Well, obviously, something we can say to people listening to this is raising awareness of this issue is important with everybody, but particularly looking for perhaps work colleagues or people they know that might be looking vulnerable, might be looking distressed, might be in a place like you were those years ago and not knowing who to turn to and supporting them and pointing them, signing posting into the right places to come and of course reading your book shamed which um, I know uh, the proceeds of that go towards supporting the charity don't they so that's another good thing that everybody can do and of course those of us that are seroptimists lobbied very much for the law to be changed have lobbied since for awareness raising and I know having you amongst our number has been a great help to seroptimists across um, the UK to have you as a speaker and telling us your story. So thank you, Saab. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. Um, hearing it from you is so important. Uh, I just want, is there anything else you want to say as we close? I'll probably just leave um, listeners with a message that if you're, if you know somebody who's going through abuse, any kind of abuse, just, you know, support them and help them realise they're not alone. Because when I was going through my situation, I felt completely alone thinking there's nobody out there to support me, guide me or give me any kind of help. And there's so many victims out there, like myself, like my sister-in-law, who actually go through this. But the main thing is to help them understand they're not alone out there. There is support available, loads of support available out there. Then please have much more understanding than they used to years ago. So you can approach any, any agency out there. And as true honour, we are helped here to help them understand and we, we will listen to them. Well, thank you, Saab. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you for joining us. It's been lovely to hear from you and take care of yourself and speak to you again soon. And thank you. And everybody tune in to our next SI Voices. You've been listening to SI Voices, a podcast hosted by Seroptimist International. Follow us on social media for our latest news and updates at Seroptimist Global on Facebook and Instagram and at Seroptitweet on Twitter. You can also check out our website, seroptimistinternational.org. Please join us next time on SI Voices.